This is the Mindfulness and Productivity Systems Podcast with Dr. Serene Sharif. This is a space where we explore how mindfulness, productivity systems, and our thoughts create the magic in our life. I'm here to help and support you if you are struggling with overwhelm and burnout, and you're looking for tools to take control of your time, mind, energy, and productivity. I'm your host, Dr. Serene Sharif, and I am a general surgeon, medical educator, mom to three wonderful children, and wife, which were all instrumental in my journey to be a productivity and burnout coach. I'm excited to share my tools and unique framework to build a community so no one has to go through this alone, empowering each other to find our way out of burnout and overwhelm. We will explore how my mindfulness and productivity systems framework can help you combine the energy of mindfulness with the scientific principles of habit building and your unique systems of productivity. My framework is designed to help you find clarity, design your dream life, and create your transformation. We'll discuss how to overcome limiting beliefs and obstacles that are standing in the way of your dream life, as well as how to create and sustain your new habits in a way that will allow you to finally ditch your willpower and motivation struggles and have more time and energy to live your best life. This is episode number 40. In our last episode, we talked about connecting to our brain and really creating that happy ending life by design by looking at what are the things we want and really taking the actions and creating the changes that we want to see in our life. Now, in this episode, we are going to expand further on this and really talk about connecting to our vision and to our purpose. How do we really recognize where we are, what we want, and how to create that next step, and then the next step, and then the next step, and keep taking the steps that will help us get to our next level. As we talk about designing and creating the changes that we want to see, I want to send you a special invite. If you are ready to connect to your life, your vision, and your future self, create your 2022 vision board and set your goals, designing the habits to create your best year ever, then please join my Create Your Vision for 2022 experiential masterclass that is scheduled for December 29th, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard. You can register at www.serenitywellnessmd.com forward slash vision 2022. You can also find the link in the show notes. And I look forward to meeting all of you there as we design and create the changes that we want to see in our life. Now, I'm so excited to get back to our session today where we're going to discuss and share actionable tips on how to create the changes that you want to see in your life. Thank you so much for listening. I'm so excited to welcome my guest today, Dr. Mitra Ayazifar. Dr. Ayazifar is an ophthalmologist in private practice in Northern California, where she helps her patients gain their best potential vision and enjoy life and their hobbies for years to come. I am so excited to have you here, Mitra. Hi, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for inviting me on. I'm excited to speak. Awesome. And I would love for you to share for our listeners to hear just a little bit about your journey. And when we talk about vision, right, there's so many interpretations of that. We talk about our eyesight and our vision, but it's really also about our life vision and how we envision how things are, you know, our future and all of those things. So I think that you have such a unique journey and perspective, and I'd love for you to share a little bit about all of the hats you've worn and, and are wearing and how you've really gone through finding your 
our vision, both metaphysically as well as physically. Absolutely. I was actually not born in the U.S. I was born in Iran and my family and I, just the four of us, came to the U.S. when I was start of high school when I was 14. So going from one culture to the other, knowing some English but not cooking and mm-hmm. trying to assimilate into high school was a challenge on its own. My parents gave up everything to bring us here and just allow us to have a good life as far as education and opportunities, especially for me as a female. I definitely appreciated all the sacrifices. And when I went to medical school, I think by the fourth, it was my fourth year of medical school. I hadn't truly decided what I wanted to do. It was in the beginning of fourth year. And all of a sudden I had my rotation in ophthalmology towards the beginning of the year, which was great for me. And I thought, wow, this is great. I get to do surgeries. I get to have long-term relationship with my patients and have a life essentially where I could choose whether I wanted to be on trauma call or not and how much I wanted to do. So I thought that was an excellent match. I also mistakenly thought I wasn't comfortable with internal medicine, all the things I had to know, all the body parts, all the organs. And I thought I would go home and I would probably constantly wonder, have I done everything? Did I miss anything? And I thought ophthalmology, two eyes, how much is there to know about two eyes? So I thought this is, I can master this. It's probably a good thing. But obviously I was wrong about not too much or enough information to be able to feel very comfortable with it. But I have never regretted this decision uh, a day in my life because every aspect that I had thought about and thought I would love about it was true. When I first graduated, I started teaching at Brown for a couple of years. And then my husband and I had always said that we would move back to California because we he had family there. And so when we moved back, I took about six months to position the kids in, in the school. They were three and five at the time. And just took a little bit of time to really decide what I wanted to do. And I ended up actually working in other people's practices as an employed physician. And one particular practice in Northern California, I had been with them. I was with them for about 13 years until right before the pandemic. Right before the pandemic, I had made the decision that perhaps I would like to go out on my own and start a location in Northern California. That location is about 40 minutes away or 40 miles away. And I thought I've had these patients for 13 years. They were the only practice there. And I thought I want to offer a different type of practice so I can take care of my patients the way I would like. And it was, I think in January of 2020, when I started a location close to them. And my some of my patients followed, a lot of them followed over a, a period of time, but that was a big move for me. I also had a similar setup closer to home, maybe about seven miles from my home, where ophthalmology has a lot of toys. And <laughs> so to have two locations and to have to buy and purchase all that equipment is a little bit challenging. So the way I set up my practice is that I found an established optometry practice that had a great reputation that I was, that I had a similar outlook as far Mm -hmm. as patient taking care of patients. And I share space with them, essentially rent space, staff, equipment, everything from them. And that's how I've set up my two locations. And that seems to have worked out for me. Love it. What a beautiful uh, way to honor our hearts, right? Because being able to practice medicine on our own terms, I think that there's so much that is broken in medicine and, and we talk about it a lot and not again, not to bash medical practice per se, but just to say that we all went into medicine with all of this passion and excitement and wanting to help 
and all of these things. And just, there's a lot of non-medical stuff that is encroaching into the way we practice, the way we do things. And I think that's one of the things actually that I feel so grateful, even for my own practice is to be Mm -hmm. able to practice surgery on my own terms. Feel like I can do it as much as I want. Feel like the time that I want with my patients, not feel rushed, not feel like someone's got a clock on me. 15 seconds. Okay, move. Let's go. And I I don't want to practice that way. We don't build a lot of long-term relationships and surgery. I do a lot of acute care and really a lot of high intensity settings in trauma or needing emergency surgery. There's a lot of struggles and anxieties and feelings that patients have. And just to say, Hey, we're going to do surgery. Let's go. And, And just not even give them time or space to process that or be with them as another human. I I feel like that has added such a depth to my practice and allowed me to feel like what I wanted to when I started, which is really feeling like I'm helping others. I'm helping humans. And I am also a human in that interaction as opposed to, okay, okay, let's go. I I checked. I did the orders. I I did my HNP. Now it's time to go. Like, where's the connection? So I think that for me, that really changed a lot. So I love hearing your story and how you built it and, you know, how you envision how that would work. And and then as another person who really learned English and I learned English in like maybe the year before high school school. I can't remember now exactly, but it was in my teens. And I remember just like knowing a few words and trying to put sentences together and really what a change it has been to be able to connect and really appreciate when I see others who don't speak English or English is their second language or third language. Like I get that struggle where you're trying to find the words and really understand a complex situation, but they just don't have the language for it. So I think that helps us honor both ourselves and others through that experience for sure absolutely absolutely it's like i said it's book languages Mm -hmm. what you learn as far as english and the books is so different from what you need to survive in high school or even in the world even now sometimes i have a scrub tech who is constantly coming up with these phrases that i have no clue about she's educating me still yeah of course (laughs) yeah oh me too i i've lived in u.s probably longer than i've lived anywhere else and i feel like i'm still learning especially some of the cultural slangs and references to movies and sport. Those are the two <laughs> things that I'm still learning. Things like history and anatomy and like the medical stuff is not the hard part. It's all the other stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And I would love for you to share, you'd shared a little bit earlier, just how your sort of that intersection of your personal life and your professional life really helped you take stock of, okay, this is, this is where I am. And these are some of the changes that I want to see in my life and, and making that transition. I'd love for you to share a little bit and share how you navigate it through that journey. As far as the practice, you mean? Yes, that too. Because it is a big change to go from being to working for someone else or a big group, etc. And then going to a solo practice. But I was actually talking about your diagnosis. That's a big diagnosis for anyone. And right. we are so used to being the care provider. And then when we need care and how that shifts, I'd love to hear your journey. Let's see. That was about eight, I think about eight years ago. So I, I am not one to rush to the doctor for any reason. I had gone and had a very normal GYN exam in the June of that year, about eight years ago. So everything was good. And I think I was about 45. 
four at the time and I was in the best shape of my life, exercising at this kickboxing studio, weightlifting, signing up for half marathons or even sprint triathlons. I thought I'm doing everything right. And I started noticing like waking up in the morning and I realized that I have this urgency to go to the, to go to the bathroom. And I thought that's really odd because it's not happening when I'm jumping up and down and doing and with exertion. And I thought, okay, so I probably let it go for about two, three weeks and it wasn't going away. I called for some reason. And like I said, I don't rush to the doctor. I called up my primary care and I said, I I think there's something wrong with my bladder. I've had two childbirths. So Mm -hmm. maybe it's that. She gave me an appointment. I went in, she examined me and she said, I don't really notice anything, but I'm going to send you to a urogynecologist and we'll see what she says. I had an appointment with that specialist about a week later, not too far after that. And this is probably at this point we're in October. And so she saw me, I had about a two hour visit in her office and she did the internal exam and she said, I feel a mask on your left ovary. So let's have you go downstairs and do a transvaginal ultrasound. Went there. Of course, the tech doesn't say anything. They did the exam. I came up to see the doctor again and she said, yeah, there's something that's suspicious. We're going to go ahead and order an MRI. And I thought in my mind, I'm thinking it's just a cyst. A lot of people have cysts. It either comes and goes or it's just stays there and it's benign. I'm doing everything right. I'm taking care of my patients too. So I'm going to be fine. So I had gone and done the MRI and on the patient portal, I was just coming back from the clinic and I checked into the patient portal and it told me the results. And it said that it's highly likely that it's malignant, Mm -hmm. you know, that it's ovarian cancer. And on there, I saw that there was an appointment for me to see a surgical oncologist. And I thought, and this is all through me just checking the portal. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I didn't know what to say. I was just shocked. I was, I think it sank in a little bit when the reading on MRI was suspicious Mm -hmm. or at least highly likely, but I still had a little bit of denial in the background where I'm thinking, no, 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 it's it's just, it's going to be fine. So finally we had to, my husband at the time, we went through a lot to try and get to the surgical oncologist that was going to do minimally invasive, at least to start. And because I I had an HMO at the time. And when we went to see him, he basically said, yes, I'm going to go in. We're going to, if you're in the operating room about 40 minutes and you come out, then you know that I did a biopsy. We sent it there for frozen section. They looked at it and they came back as benign. So then we close everything up. But he also got consent from me for doing further testing, obviously. But he Mm -hmm. said, if you wake up and it's about three or four hours later, that means that the biopsy came back immediately as malignant. And so we have to take out everything, do a hysterectomy, take out the ovaries. And we even have to do some further testing by to figure out are the lymph nodes involved? Are there any other body parts involved? And so I may have to extend the incision. I may have to do many biopsies there. And I thought, okay, I'm sure it's just going to be 40 minutes and I'll be awake. So that day when I woke up and I was in the recovery room, it was about several hours later. So I knew that was not good news, but I still thought it's just going to be in the ovary. It's not going to have extended anywhere else. And he, when he came in, he's 
said that that was positive. It was malignant. And essentially that the wash that they did was also malignant. So that increases the stage and they're mm-hmm. waiting for the results of the 21 lymph nodes that they have mm-hmm. taken out to see how far it may have gone. I think, and I've said this before, where you catch the first few sentences, especially after hearing ovarian cancer, mm-hmm. I just was not hearing anything else. My family was in the room, so I'm sure they did. But that's about the part that I heard. And I thought, I, I, I wasn't even processing. So I, I went home. I kept thinking mostly about my two kids. Mm-hmm. They, My daughter at the time was in the middle of eighth grade. So she had a graduation coming up. My son was in fifth grade, quite young. Mm-hmm. And I did, obviously, I did everything for them. So I thought, okay, I thought of all the ways I'm not going to be there and who is going to take care of them. Mm-hmm. And how is that going to happen? When about a week or so passed and we got news that, it, yes, it was a stage two, I think it was a 2B or 2A, I can't even remember now, and that I had to go through 18 sessions of chemo. And in the meantime, mind you, I have been, when I had the surgery, it was Thanksgiving. I did not cancel any patients for the week after. So I was in clinic the week after seeing patients. I had not said anything to my, to the practice that was in Grass Valley. I didn't say anything to them because I I just didn't know what to say. First of all, Mm -hmm. I hadn't processed it myself and I didn't know how how long would I even have to take time off? Mm -hmm. This is what I'm thinking. Do I even have to take time off? Maybe I can do this while I'm seeing patients. I think I underestimated the mental strain and stress besides the physical strain that the the treatment would have. But absolutely, because I was trying to, I think I, I was even, I was trying to compartmentalize. Okay, this is separate from my practice. This is, yeah, I'll deal with this. I'm not bringing this into my work. Maybe I can keep on going throughout. And I soon realized that's not the case, obviously. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I can't imagine. And I feel like I hear that from so many physicians. The case it's your, you just had surgery yourself and you're back to clinic in a week. And most places like we don't feel like we can speak up and say, I'm, I have a health war. It's even harder when it's your family member who has a health crisis or your parents or siblings or children. And, and you just think, okay, it's okay. I'm just going to go to work and I'll just come and I'll do double duty at night. And then I'll go to work during the day or vice versa. And somehow it's all going to work out, but we just to honor, like we are also humans. And when we have health needs or we need space to just process something like that, maybe it would have been helpful to have some time even before your surgery, just to process through figure out, okay, what does this mean for me? I have young children. How am I managing my emotions around this? How am I, do I have someone to talk to? Am I processing through that at all? Mm -hmm. So I can only imagine where things were at that point. I don't know why I'm trying to think about this as you're mentioning it. I don't know if I started thinking of myself as a physician, as maybe other people I assumed would look and say, no, you you don't need to take time off. Mm -hmm. You're a physician. You help take care of patients. You don't take time off. You just keep going. Or maybe that was my protective mechanism, survival mechanism, where I thought, no, I I can do everything I was doing before. I can just keep going. I finally told the practice and I said, this is what's going on. I'm going to start the chemo. Probably it was in before Christmas even. And they said, take as much time as you need. We're here for you, which I appreciated. And obviously some of my patients knew because I I was, I'm very close to my patients. And, and when I went through the first session, first, well, the first six sessions, my brother was actually there with me. So it was maybe four or five hours of infusion, Mm -hmm. pre-infusion with the 
steroid and Benadryl and all that good stuff. And then going through the IV infusion of the other stuff. And I, I don't even know how I got through it because all you're thinking about, of course, I had a port placed and mm -hmm. all you're thinking about is trying to meditate on, yes, the chemo is killing the cancer cells, but it's leaving my body alone and visualizing that. And essentially, I'm going to change this. Sorry about that. Kind of visual, visualizing and trying to get through it. If I started thinking, okay, I have 17 more to go. If I started thinking about my treatment that way, I don't know that I would have made it through. But as far as, okay, I made it through another 10 minutes. I'm going to go through today. I'm just going to get over today, maybe one hour at the time. I think my, I didn't start thinking about too far into the future because I couldn't. At night, when I would think about too far into the future, I would have panic attacks because I would wake up not worried of dying necessarily because I, people know the statistics for ovarian cancer, but really thinking about the kids and who's going to take care of them and what's going to happen to them. Those were the things that really took over my mind and made me not sleep and just wake up in a cold sweat at night. Mm -hmm. So trying to talk myself through that and be able to get some rest was definitely mm -hmm. a challenge. Yeah. Um, I think that your strategy of when you're going through something really difficult like that, of taking it one step at a time, one minute at a time, like just not trying to think, okay, these are all the things that I have to do, but instead saying, I just have to get through this moment. And, and each moment in time gets me closer and closer to being done with the treatment yes. and, and moving ahead. So I think that's really inspiring. Thank you so much for sharing. I appreciate that. I know it's a very personal experience. Of course. I think sharing it, I, I tend to discover new things or new concepts that maybe have been in the back of my mind. And I have tried to put it behind me and maybe not think about, but it definitely changes your perspective on your, on everything. Do you realize your priorities are shuffled? You realize what's important, like you were mentioning before, you realize the things that you gave so much time and brain space to is not really as important in the grand scheme of things that there are other issues, other things that people struggle with, or that I should focus my time and my energy on. Also friends, friends, definitely people that I, people just don't know how to handle the diagnosis, even though it's you that's going through it, they may not know how to be there for you. So sometimes they will tend to stay away because they don't know what to say. And then other people that you, that you didn't even think about coming into your life will come by and essentially play a role in your life that you didn't even realize. I had the people that I thought were acquaintances that would do a meal train and bring food and even come and sit with a mask on and just spend time with me because I couldn't, I really didn't go out. I was off of work for about eight months going through the process and also recovering a little bit towards. And so I had, um, I wanted to maintain as normal uh, a semblance of my normal life before cancer mm -hmm. as I possibly could. So I would go to the kickboxing studio. They used to have spin classes in the morning, not when everybody was there, but maybe at 5 a.m. they would have a spin class. And so I would go there a few people, be on the bike away from everybody else just to do as much as I could. No, mm -hmm. I, I can do this. I can still do this. And I had a couple that would set up a, the wife, Michelle, actually would set up. A, I told her about my anxiety and not being able to sleep at night. And so she was great at meditation and yoga. I couldn't do the yoga, but she would come and meditate, help me meditate just to gain some peace with the process and maybe give me another tool to be able to manage it, manage this whole thing. That's amazing. And so many ways you connect with others too, right? The, the challenges that come in our life, I've found they connect us to people that we never knew. 
you where maybe they were in the periphery of our life. Yes. And so there's in, in all experiences, there's some, we call it what silver lining or like the other part of the struggle. There's definitely love and connection and compassion and even just compassion for ourselves. Like we're going through this and how can we nurture and support ourselves? And I think our brain loves to, when we see routine, it's our brain's way of saying, see, look, like life is okay. Like we're, we yeah. can make things. So that's, <laughs> that's where you're going with the spin class or with like, even just doing things like building some kind of routine in our life, even if it's completely different, it's because then our brain is able to rest a little and say, okay, see, there's still something of my old life here and it's not all falling apart because I think that's really hard for our brain to cope with. Absolutely. I had joined a an ovarian cancer support group and so it was all ladies at different stages however many years out and when I first started going through the treatment it was helpful but then it seemed for me if I would hear that one of the members had a recurrence or something mm-hmm. like that it would just throw me into a pit that I mm-hmm. it was so hard to get out of and I decided that maybe that's not form of support for me that no, I'm not going to look at statistics online. I'm not going to look at five year this five year that and I thought I'm just going to focus on today. I'm just going to get through today. I'm going to handle my nausea. I'm going to I'm going to try and keep my weight up if I can. I'm going to try and do everything I can to help support my body to get through this and the rest of it. If I'm meant to be here, I'm just going to leave it up to him. And I we ended up doing not too many oncologists recommend IV vitamin C, mega doses of IV vitamin C, because the thought at the time at least was that it interferes with the action of the chemotherapy. But my brother had done a lot of reading about that. And so we started looking into how we can get that for me. And so three days a week, fourth day would have been chemo. Three days a week, I was getting the IV infusions, mega doses of IV vitamin C. And that was the only thing that I think that was one of the things that helped me get through it as well as I did. Because Mm -hmm. yes, it kills the cancer cells if you're lucky, but it also damages your own healthy cells. So it's really important to recover and rejuvenate and be able to get past that. So that was definitely something that... Any little bit that supports and and gives you a boost to get to that next day. And I love that you shared about the uncertainty, the uncertainty that comes with the cancer diagnosis with going through the treat. And really your statistics is so different from anybody else's because you have your own factors, et cetera. But we, we all still look at, okay, what is the five-year data? What is, what does this chemo do? What's the percent for this? And really that just adds to that, that space of anxiety that builds up. And especially recently with the pandemic and changes in work and changes in and what is okay? Okay, now you need to have the hospitals open and close and put restrictions on how many yes. procedures you can do and who who gets to have some of the preventative care versus okay, now we're only doing urgent and emergent procedures. And because that really affects everyone's well being, everyone's health as well. There's been so many delays in even just like regular preventative care. So then people are getting diagnosed medical conditions later, they're having some organ damage, they're having all of these things. So definitely, there's a lot of 
anxiety and uncertainty that goes into that space. We're not just talking about our health and well-being, but also our job, our financial situation. And I think that it brings up a really key point of there is, it doesn't matter whether there's pandemic health and there's been always uncertainty, but sometimes we're able to better ignore it. Now, of course, you know, pandemic and a total highlight on the uncertainties, we're, we're forced into it. We've had other types of pandemic type illnesses and, but it's just been better controlled. It hasn't been as widespread or as sure. high of a morbidity and mortality as what we're seeing now, but we've had things like this before. And the uncertainty is something that I think our human brain really does not do well with. And it increases the anxiety. It increases so many of the other mental health issues that come up and, and then we That's have access to all the care. It's, it's like this loop that just keeps happening. So I love that you pointed out, like you look at what is possible. What are things that you can change? What are things that it doesn't matter what you do, it's always going to be uncertain. So where is, where's our space of control? What are the things that we can do? And then the rest of it, leave it as it'll be what it'll be. We can't mm-hmm. change it. So how do we, instead of spending all our time ruminating over it, how do we take control for what we can do something about? I think ultimately realizing that there is a limit as far mm-hmm. as what we can control. Because as I think as physicians, a lot of us are type A personalities. Mm-hmm. And so we want to have control over as much as we can. And we're dealing with people's well-being, with their sight, with their lives. So we we want to have that control. It feels comfortable to us. So not having that or realizing that there's so uncertainty, like you said, is really causes a lot of confusion or a lot of distress. But I think ultimately for our sanity, really, we have to leave certain things to faith mm-hmm. if that's what we believe in, which I do. And then take as many steps, be responsible to take action and control as many steps as we can. Control your environment, control your nutrition, control your exercise control your friendships, control your, the, I rely a lot on my group of girlfriends mm-hmm. that I have a really close knit group of girlfriends that I make as much time for. That was not part of my thing. I would work, come home, take care of the kids. And that was it. But I realized for me, that's my self-care. That's mm-hmm. part of my self-care, whether we're communicating on Zoom or FaceTime or whatever it is, but we check in with each other. And more recently going to coffee outdoors and just being safe, but just having that feeling, okay, I'm not the only one. Yes. Other mothers experience Mm -hmm. this or other wives experience this. So it's, it's been very helpful. Very helpful. I love it. And and there's so many ways for us to do self-care. A lot of times people say, I don't have time for self-care or I don't even know what that means. And, and you shared beautiful ways to do it. And for each of us, it's different, but just looking within us to see, okay, what do we need to nurture and nourish ourselves? And how do we intentionally create that experience in our life? And it could be coffee out with friends. It could be going for a walk. It could be taking an extra 30 minute nap or going to bed a little earlier, what, whatever it might be. And all of mm-hmm. these are okay. There's no like one size fits all for all of us. And, and even just thinking about uncertainty, I was actually thinking one of the things that I used to struggle with a lot was feeling like I'm struggling or failing as a mom. Oh yeah. So I used to feel like, Oh, I'm not doing enough for the kids. Like maybe I'm not cooking the right food. I'm not making sure they get all their protein or they're getting all their vegetables 
or their handwriting isn't good. good. Like all of these things that you think my grandmother used to teach me this. And especially now we live in these nuclear families. When I was growing up, like I learned things from my aunts and my grandmother and my uncles and all of these other people. But now I feel like I have to be all of those people to my children and it's impossible. And, and there is a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen. Their safety when they go to school, like on the school bus, forget about the pandemic, even before the pandemic, you know, can they go play by themselves in the park or because there's so many things, right. That can happen. And then I realized one day I can try to keep them in a bubble all their lives and do every single thing and be a miserable mom and and like a a, a paranoid mom, or I could just let them live life. And, and I think that was one of the most actually fun things about my childhood is that I got to do some things by myself. The world was a lot safer then, but there's just no way for, for me to protect them with everything. So I've tried to, what I've tried to really do, help them experience things and not try to protect them and cushion their falls as much. That's really where I've taken the biggest step in stepping backwards and saying, I understand that, yes, I have no idea what's going to happen if I do that, but, but isn't it better for them to fall when I am like in the periphery watching over them as opposed to when they go to college or when they're an adult, when they're at work, et cetera. And I'm not meaning like a true physical fall, but just I I, know. like I let them, if they don't wake up and they miss their school bus, then that's something they're learning. And we're, my oldest is 16. We're really working through all of the boundaries and all of the, what are the things that he needs to accept responsibility? Right. And what are the things that I'm going to step in and help him? And I've told him it's, it's not because I don't love you or I don't want to support you, but I just want you to realize in a year, like you are leaving for college and I'm not going to be there in your dorm room to say, Hey, wake up. This is your second snooze alarm. Like you got class in 30 minutes. I mean, no one's going to be there to do it. And you need to learn how to do that. And if that means you're going to get a tardy today, that's what you needed to learn. Then that's what needs to happen. And so we are all working through that and what that looks like and what that looks like for all the ages. Cause I have an eight-year-old and a 13-year-old too, but I think it's been really a lot of growing for me just to accept the uncertainty. And that before I used to feel like their every tardy was my tardy. Oh my God. I felt like they're going to have five tardies on their school record. And then when I thought about it, I'm like, okay, what's the worst that's going to happen if they get five tardies? But instead, if I look at what are they learning when they have mm-hmm. to walk in late to their class and there's that little, uh, I should I, like little cringe factor. I should probably woken up on time. What mm-hmm. are they learning from that? I'm learning where to step back as a mom and not be always trying to protect them and cushion. That's, I think that's the hardest thing as a mom. It definitely is. So mm-hmm. I applaud you for doing that. <laughs> it's, it's the hardest thing to just step back because you, you want to fix things for them. You want mm-hmm. to protect them. You want to do all of this thing. And I guess it's child dependent too. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. I'm, I am by no means saying it's easy. It is, it is, it has been a lot of self work, self-assessment for the last couple of years. But I think that the space it came from was really just understanding uncertainty It is part of that every day. We all experience that and we want to cushion it for our kids because we're like, oh, I struggle with it. I don't want them to feel anxious or worried. Like I'm going to make sure everything's okay. But then one day I, I literally, I woke up and I looked at my little baby, my firstborn and realized he's got, his voice has changed. He's taller than me. Like he's going to be leaving. Them. And it really changed the way our relationship was. Cause I told him, I said, listen, I love you, but we have, we have just a few years together and there's things that I want you to learn. I want you to be able to cook at least a few meals for yourself. I want you to, if you don't know what to do, I want you to learn how to figure it out for yourself instead of just calling because mm-hmm. I'll help you. But what are you going to do when you go to college or when you like, when you grow up and you have a job? 
job and you're an adult, right? He's actually starting. He just got a job and he's starting tomorrow. No, Monday with his training. So I am super excited for him. I think he's really, he has a lot of things he likes to do. And I said, it sounds like you need to get a job if you like to do all these things. And the old me would have been like, oh no, he's in 11th grade. It's going to take all the time from his studying. I I didn't have a job in high school, but I had a job through undergrad and and part of medical school. And I was a librarian in medical school. I, I felt like it helped me actually manage my time better and look at what are the things I need to do and learn to prioritize. So hopefully he learns. And if not, then we'll see some bad grades and we'll see what happens. But yes, it's, it's really the learning process for all of us. There are no, there's no book about this. And as you mentioned, each child is different. Each child's needs are different. I will learn as I go. That's a good point. Yes. I know my, my daughter is applying to nursing programs. So she did mm-hmm. two years and she's 21 now. Mm-hmm. She did two years at Sac State and then she has applied to nursing programs. So we're waiting to hear whether or not that happens this semester or next semester. And she's been my right hand in my practice that's closer to home. So she's been my surgery scheduler, patient contact. She's my, yeah, she's been my MA, everything. So I think it's been a great experience for her. For me, I have started to look at her differently, obviously. She's Mm -hmm. knock on wood, mashallah. She's she's beautiful inside and out. And of course I'm biased, but I think it's true. It sounds true. (laughs) Absolutely. And what what a joy to work and have that sort of different relationship to work with them in a different way. So I love that. That sounds incredibly precious. I would love for you to share also as we wrap up here, just what has been your sort of biggest mindset shift or realization just for yourself, not as a mom, as a physician or any of those things. What has it been for you as you've gone through all of these, these the journey and just your experience? I think I used to have the mindset and maybe most, a lot of people are like this. I used to think that, oh, I would like to do this and this, but I have plenty of time. I'll, I'll do it next year or I'll do it two years from now. And time has has a different meaning for me. Mm-hmm. Time is more like, okay, either today or maybe never. Mm-hmm. Certain decisions that I think will be helpful as far as my well-being, mental health, and my family's well-being, I don't push off to tomorrow. Just knowing that maybe I need to take action now rather than wait because there may never be a better time. And that's not to say, obviously, I live life taking responsible decisions and not hurting anybody else. But really, mm-hmm. I think just not putting things off to the unknown future mm-hmm. is the main thing. And as much as I can take care of now, I tend to try to achieve those goals. Leaving that employed position, that Mm -hmm. was great. It was a check coming in, regular set of patients, all of that. And it was right before the pandemic. So not the best time to Mm -hmm. change and go into a new practice. But as far as how I wanted to live my life on a daily basis and come home and be able to put my head on my pillow and sleep with that's the decision I needed to make. Mm -hmm. And the uncertainty of being closed, shut down for two months only seeing emergency patients, maybe 10 emergency patients during that time. And of course, surgery is being shut down for Mm -hmm. several months. That was very nerve wracking. But no matter what, I was working on my practice, on what I wanted to do, living my life the way I want to live my life, making a decision to probably about a year after my diagnosis, my husband and I separated, but making that decision and realizing that do I want to live my life this way every single day that I have left, however Mm -hmm. few or however many that I may have left, just knowing that you want to take advantage of every single day and maximize your growth. 
I love it. Thank you for sharing. That's a beautiful, beautiful philosophy to really explore for, I think, all of us. So if any of our listeners wanted to get in touch with you and know more about you, where would they find your information? So my website for my practice is www.capimed.com, C-A-P-E-Y-E-M-E-D.com. My Instagram handle is at Mitra, M-I-T-R-A-M-D-3. And Facebook page, you can find me under my name, Mitra, M-I-T-R-A personal and business face page. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I'll include that information in the show. So everyone will have a chance to connect with you and get to know you more. I've actually been looking for an ophthalmologist and I wish you were closer. (laughs) You can take care of me virtually. I really appreciate the time that you've spent with us and all of the wisdom that you've shared. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. For my listeners, if there are any topics that you want to hear more, please drop a comment below. I would be happy to add those to our weekly content. For all those listening, thank you for joining us today. If you found this valuable, please like, subscribe, leave a review on iTunes and share it with a friend or two. I would so appreciate that. I would love to hear from you. If you have a story to share about burnout or overwhelm, please reach out to me so we can continue to build this community so no one has to go through burnout and overwhelm alone. You can reach out to me at my website, serenitywellnessmd.com or Mindfulness and Productivity Systems Facebook page or at Serenity Wellness MD on Instagram. The content of this podcast is not meant to be medical advice. Tune in for the next episode coming to you every Thursday morning. Goodbye for now.